five, four, three, two, one. Lift off of the Falcon 9. I'm Mark Boucher. Welcome to a special episode of The Space Economy. This Friday, December 24th, the James Webb Space Telescope is scheduled to launch at 7.20 a.m. Eastern Standard Time or 12.20 UTC. Today's podcast is a Future in Space Operations presentation from December 15th with Robert Smith of the University of Alberta. He discusses the Making of Megascience, the History of the James Webb Space Telescope. So what does the James Webb Space Telescope have to do with the space economy? Well, to start, over 10,000 people worked on the project, with over $10 billion being spent by NASA, the European Space Agency, and the Canadian Space Agency over 20 years. And if you're a regular to this podcast, you will know we previously interviewed NASA's chief economist, Alex McDonald, about his book, the Long Space Age, the economic origins of space exploration from colonial America to the Cold War. The book, in part, discusses the grand terrestrial observatories, how they were funded, and the impact on society. So while the Webb Space Telescope will advance our knowledge of the universe, it will also have an economic impact. Listen in. The talk is going to be focused on what I call here the making of mega science. And so I'll be talking principally about the history of JWST, but I'll also be taking a look at a couple of other what I call mega science projects, that is projects beyond the normal kind of scale of big science. We're talking multi-billion dollar enterprises, enterprises that certainly um, when we're talking about American projects or American-led projects, get into very usually very high levels of politics in, in the White House and the Congress. So we'll be talking about JWST, but also the Hubble Space Telescope and the superconducting super collider a little bit. So I'll go to the second slide. And the way I try to organize this talk is in terms of what I call a number of moments, rather than try and give some sort of straight narrative or chronology to the history of JWST, I've tried to organize it around, uh, as I say, some moments. And I'd like us to take a long run at this, because I always find this sobering, um, looking at scientific knowledge early in the 20th century and see how it's been transformed in the last hundred or so years, just to give us a little bit of a, uh, a framework here. So my first moment actually comes from 1905, and so this is George Darwin, who was a son of Charles Darwin, an extremely distinguished geophysicist. And um, what Darwin pointed to in 1905 was what he saw as the limits of astronomy. And he pointed out, was it not as futile to imagine that humans can discover the origin and tendency of the universe as to expect a housefly to instruct us as to the theory of the planets. And so within a few decades, that's exactly what astronomers were trying to do, discovery of the expanding universe and so on. And if we go to slide number four, at the time that Darwin made that pronouncement, 
um, then the dominant view of the large-scale properties of the universe centered on what was called the one galaxy universe. So you could go to your local bookstore, purchase a copy of Agnes Clarke's The System of the Stars. She was regarded as a highly reliable author. And you could have read about a one galaxy universe. That is, there is only one visible galaxy in the universe. That's our Milky Way system, the nebulae that we can see surround our own Milky Way system. It, it is a one galaxy universe. Well, that vision of both the limitations of astronomy and the nature of the large-scale properties of the universe, they were rapidly transformed, and in large part that was due to the remaking of American astronomy. And if we're on slide five, it's um, new forms of patronage make possible bigger and more powerful telescopes. So these are three major patrons of astronomy in the late 19th, early 20th century, Andrew Carnegie, John D. Rockefeller, uh, Charles Titan Yerkes, and these are people who my colleagues would class as um, robber barons, but they donated substantial parts of their wealth to astronomy, and maybe the most famous product of those kinds of donations was uh, Carnegie's to establish the Carnegie Institution of Washington and the Matt Wilson Observatory, of which the most important product early in the 20th century is the Hooker 100-inch telescope. And that was employed by Edwin Hubble, of course, in 1923. He discovers a variable star in the Andromeda Nebula. And that variable star, and you can see it marked on the photographic plate uh, on the slide, uh, that is slide seven. The left-hand image shows the Andromeda Nebula as it was photographed in 1888. And when that image was first shown, there were people who cried out, it's a nebula hypothesis made visible. So it's a single star with planets forming around it. And that vision doesn't last very long because, as I say, 1923, the variable is detected. It's proved to be a Cepheid variable. And then if we go to slide eight, we have of uh, the period luminosity relationship, which have been determined first by Henrietta Leavitt. And Hubble establishes that our own um, galaxy is not unique. There are, in fact, a myriad of other galaxies in space. So it was less than 100 years ago that the uh, scientific viewpoint was that the universe is full of galaxies. That was established. So it's established less than 100 years ago, which, as I say, I always find quite remarkable. So let's go to our second moment with slide nine. And we can go to the 4th of October. 1957, which I'm sure many of you have already guessed, means that we've got Sputnik. And this is, of course, a crucial step in the space race. If we go to slide 10, and uh, the American response to Sputnik means that we have this enormous outpouring of uh, national treasure and the commitment and effort of thousands of people in the 
human spaceflight program, but there was also very large-scale scientific programs that emerge as a result of the space race. And if we go to slide 11, this is just a reminder that we've got this new form of patronage and the federal patronage transforms really the prospects for space astronomy, which have been pretty limited really to uh, a few rocket flights where you get maybe five minutes above the Earth's atmosphere to make your observations. And so is a rapid move and we go to slide 12, uh, to the emergence of what I call here panchromatic space astronomy. And that is illustrated by the IRS satellite on the left and Uhuru, and that's uh, the Goddard project manager with uh, Bruno Rossi, famous X-ray astronomer. And so the project manager was Marjorie Townsend. So we have infrared, X-ray, gamma ray, ultraviolet, and so on, emerging certainly by the 1970s. And so when we're looking at the history of JWST, I think it, it's important to keep in mind this, this kind of earlier history and, and the development of space astronomy and how that was building on earlier efforts in ground-based astronomy as well and working together now with ground-based astronomy. And so this enterprise, I think, of space astronomy has been remarkable in many ways because it's been, I, I think, extremely productive while also at the same time being in many respects incredibly hard. So let's go to moment three, and this is slide 14. So we're at the 13th of September 1989, and it's the 1989 workshop at the Space Telescope Science Institute in Baltimore, where there are uh, um, a large number of participants who were considering a successor to the Hubble Space Telescope. And at this point, it's referred to as the Next Generation Space Telescope. And on the right of slide 15, you can see a couple of uh, artists impression. Uh, one at the top there, what is described as figure one, it's a 10 meter telescope in what they call high Earth orbit. Below, we've got a telescope on the moon. And this was designed <coughs> for a telescope with a 16 meter mirror. But, at that point, 1989, Hubble had still not been launched. And it's worth remembering that Hubble's detailed design and construction had begun actually in 1978. And there is Hubble on slide 16 inside uh, one of the clean rooms at the uh, Lockheed Missile Space Company. And so why were telescopes seen in that um, image of the, of the Next Generation Space Telescope Workshop? Uh, why were they on the moon? Well, there had been a space exploration initiative announced, and there's President Bush with the three Apollo 11 astronauts, along with the NASA Administrator Admiral Truly and Vice President Dan Quayle. Um, and they're outside the National Air and Space Museum, and we've got this public announcement of this initiative, and that initiative 
doesn't really go very far. But it meant that for a period, it seemed possible that there would be possibilities for telescopes on the moon. So if we go to slide 18, here's um, an abstract from a paper. This was actually a little bit before the 1989 workshop. It's by somebody called Pierre Belli, who was at the Space Telescope Science Institute. And there are a small group of people at the Institute who were considering a successor to Hubble. Given the amount of time it would take to complete a successor to Hubble, and in 1990, the expectation was that Hubble would have a lifetime, uh, perhaps of years, that was always the, the number that was quoted, although people hoped it would be longer. So if you were going to get a successor to Hubble that would be operational, either before Hubble ended its lifetime or shortly afterwards, now was the time to get moving. And so uh, Billy here is considering a 10-meter optical telescope in space. But it's now an example of what would be called a kind of Louvoir, a large ultraviolet optical infrared telescope. And you can see from his introduction, he's talking about how it takes from 10 to 15 years from inception to completion of a large astronomical telescope, which the record indicates is rather too optimistic. Here are the table of contents uh, from the 1989 workshop. You can see the range of talks that were being proposed here. And a couple of the talks that there are uh, astronomers who've got power laws for the cost of large telescopes. And so um, if you use those power laws and you just look to a Hubble successor, you get eye-watering amounts of money for uh, something like, say, a 6 or 10 meter telescope. Here is also a suggestion from the 1989 workshop that's useful to keep in mind. Scientific objectives, again, just underlining that what we've got really here is um, a Louvoir and talking about um, diffraction limited spatial resolution from the UV to beyond 10 microns. So that is the kind of successor to Hubble that is being thought about here. So if we go to one and moment number four, and if we go to the 24th of April, and I suspect a number of you can guess why we've picked the 24th of April, it's because the Hubble Space Telescope was launched, and there's Hubble on the right being uh, deployed, and a blunder awaits discovery. And that, of course, was spherical aberration. And the public response to the discovery of aberration was extremely negative. The typical kind of cartoon from the period, it's a herb block cartoon, and he's getting the Hubble to do an eye test. You can see cartoons of flying lemons and so on. So what does this mean for plans for a next-generation space telescope? Well, things really aren't moving very much as a consequence. Of this. The priority 
So we go to the uh, repair mission, and that is slide 24, the shuttle repair mission to Hubble. And um, there we can see on the right, uh, astronaut Jeff Hoffman, who's got wide-fold planetary camera one. That was one of the original complement of instruments aboard Hubble, replacing that or taking that out of Hubble so that the wide-field planetary camera two can be inserted into Hubble. And we go to slide 25. And the demonstration that Hubble was really working as it was intended to work, at least in terms of um, the public response, came from the kind of iconic, uh, iconic imagery that we can see on this slide because we have what is arguably the most famous or at least one of the most famous images from Hubble, the so-called Pillars of Creation. And there on the right, we've got Jupiter as imaged by Hubble. And we can see the uh, consequences of Jupiter having been hit by fragments of uh, Comet Shoemaker-Levy. And this was a demonstration that Hubble really was working. And if we go to slide 26, what we can see is um, what has become known as the Hubble Deep Field. Ten successive days of observations in December 1995, revealing uh, a very wide array of galaxies. And this had a very powerful effect when it was first shown as a meeting of the American Astronomical Society in uh, 1996. So the, the key point here, and if we go to slide 27, the key point here is that Hubble's troubles slowed planning for a next generation space telescope. But with what we could, I think, reasonably call Hubble's rebirth, matters could move forward again. And so let's go to moment and we're actually going to go back in time a little bit here. Because let's go and look at the decadal survey for the 1990s. And this was the decadal survey looking at priorities for astronomy, priorities for ground-based and space astronomy in the 1990s. And this was um, led by John Bacall, hence it's usually referred to as the Bacall Committee. And they declare the 1990s the decade of the infrared. And, for example, they pointed in particular to the enormous improvements in infrared detectors. Now, what they do not do is support proceeding with a uh, UV optical IR next generation space telescope. Now, they certainly mention it in their report, and they say, and let me just quote briefly from the report here, one example of a next generation space observatory is a large space telescope, a six meter telescope that would combine the light gathering power of a large ground-based telescope with the excellent image quality, ultraviolet capability, and low infrared background that are achievable in space. But in the same paragraph, they're discussing other possible Large-scale missions, uh, including a large X-ray telescope, 
a sub-millimeter observatory with a 10-meter uh, mirror. And this is more a discussion in terms of technology developments. I mean, so uh, a next-generation space telescope is not a priority in the core committee. Now, what was the state of IR? The Bacor Committee had um, talked about the infrared, the 1990s being the decade of the infrared. And here's an address by a very well-known astronomer, Malcolm Longyear, in May 1991, talking about infrared astronomy and this, what he sees as this enormous revolution, which has taken place over the last 10 years. And again, emphasizing the technology's infrared detector arrays, advances, as he puts it, in all aspects of instrumentation. About staggering advances in scientific capabilities. So that is on slide 30. And if we go to slide 31, a key point here is that the, the concept of passive calling really opens the way, I think, to a big infrared space observatory. It's really a paradigm shift from putting your telescope inside some sort of large doer, in effect, to having a, a system of passive calling. And how does that come about? Well, when Longair was making his presentation, it was at a conference in May 1991, and we can see conference participants in slide 32. And on the left, where we can see the first page of a scientific uh, uh, paper that was um, published after the conference, it's called Edison, the Next Generation Infrared Space Observatory. And Edison was going to be a passively called infrared observatory. It was planned to have a mirror, I think 1.7 meters in diameter. And that was building on an earlier plan for another passively called infrared observatory that was um, given the acronym Poirot. That would have had uh, a mirror 1.5 meters in diameter, and the person pushing this concept the hardest for passive calling and calling and really driving it forward was Tim Harden, who's seen in the image, the central image on slide 32 there. And these efforts to push a large infrared observatory, there are proposals that go to uh, both ESA and NASA, but there's no funding for a full-blown mission, but it's changing the paradigm, I think. And so on slide 33, we can see uh, a little bit from one of the uh, Poirot proposals, passively called Orbiting Infrared Observatory Telescope. And again, no triogens. And so there's part of a, uh, an Edison proposal, a planned infrared observatory, and it's worth noting that, the, that uh, Edison, the, the aim in terms of where would it be placed, and the aim was to put it at L2. 
which of course is where JWST is headed once we get a launch. So that is on slide 34. And if we go to slide 35, let's go to moment six and let's go to the 17th of January, 1966. And now we're on slide 36. And again, uh, before we leap forward to 1996, let's just reflect on this quotation from Malcolm Longair from 1991, again, from the, the conference that we've just been talking about. And he's talking about the state of the infrared where he says it's mostly the pioneers and aficionados who are using these wonderful new infrared instruments. And so what he's telling the conference participants in 1991 is, it is plainly of the greatest importance that the scientific case for the facility, that is a facility like Poirot, is very broadly supported within the whole astronomical community and not just among infrared astronomers. And so he's emphasizing that the case for the next generation infrared telescope that really has, in his words, to be absolutely first class. So let's go to slide 37. And this is a report that was published in 1996. It's called the Dressler Committee because it was uh, a, a committee chaired by uh, Alan Dressler. We were on slide 37, I think. That's um, correct. So, uh, this, it turns out, I think was a, a very important report. It lays out an argument for why, as I put it on this slide 37 here, NASA should develop a observatory of aperture four meters or larger, optimized for imaging and spectroscopy over the infrared wavelength range. So that is the argument that is made. They recommend a passively called infrared space observatory Now, sometimes uh, the plans for what was the next generation space telescope it gets referred to as a first light machine, but I think it's worthwhile looking at the recommendation here, where the recommendation is actually for, a, as it's put, a powerful general purpose observatory serving a broad range of scientific programs looking over this wavelength range of 0.5 to 20 microns. So that is the report, and why is this our moment this January 1996 is because NASA's administrator, Dan Golden, gives a speech to the American Astronomical Society, and what he argues is our next big step in space astronomy is the infrared. And he goes on to say, <laughs> I see Alan Dressler here. And he says all he wants is a four meter. I, and so this, this, this is from his speech. And, and Golden is saying, why do you ask for such a modest thing? Why not go for six or seven meters? We you know we've got years to work this out, so let's not commit to the size quite at this point. And he's asking really the astronomers and the people who are already at work on developing a next generation space telescope, I think, to be ambitious. So that's slide 40, and we go on to slide 41. And in fact, even before 
that Golding gives his speech, then uh, NASA had begun planning for what was called the Next Generation Space Telescope, NGST. There'd been a study contract established already. John Mather, who would become the project scientist for the James Webb Space Telescope, John Mather was the lead on the study contract. Goddard, the Goddard Space Flight Center, become uh, the lead NASA center. Industry was also involved on a very serious scale in, in this planning effort. That leads, for example, to a concept from Lockheed Martin, that's slide 42. That's an original concept from Lockheed Martin six meter monolithic telescope. And then if we look at slide 43, we can see some design notes by Pierre Belli, who um, we last saw thinking about a successor to Hubble uh, back in the 1980s, and now he's got a design where we've got a segmented mirror, we've got a sunshade, and we can see this in the so-called Goddard on slide 44, where we've got the Goddard yardstick design on the left there, and the TRW design on the right, and TRW would, of course, transform itself early in the 2000s into Northrop Grumman. But TRW had been centrally involved in space astronomy for a while because, for example, it was uh, the uh, uh, lead contractor for what becomes the Chandra, Chandra X-ray Observatory. And that uh, TRW concept really looks pretty close to what um, – should be uh, lofted into space by the Ariane 5 very shortly. So if we look at slide 45 and compare it to slide 44, I think the basic design, as I say, it's, it's quite striking how similar they are. So let's go to slide 46. And there's an important study reporting on this early work by these different study groups. Goddard Industry Astronomers Space Telescope Science Institute. And what it argues here is that their study, as it's put, has been greatly influenced by many other concepts of passively called telescopes, and they point to Poirot, Edison, and Mirrors. And so his report, visiting a time when galaxies were young, the next generation space telescope. And if we go to the next slide, so that was slide 46. Let's go to 47. This is, a, I think, an interesting diagram from George Rieke's book, The Last of the Great Observatories, Spitzer in the Era of Faster, Better, Cheaper at NASA, and it illustrates a move to a passively called CERTUF, and that uh, plan emerges at the end of 1993, but we can see on the left there the the so-called Titan Sirtuf from 1990, where we've got this um, very different kind of design because it's in, you've got the telescope inside a large cryogenic system. And also, it's interesting in that it underlies some of the difficulties in planning for space astronomy in the 1990s, lots of problems in science policy in the 1990s, coming with the end of the Cold War. But what's happened, I think, is in the 1990s, 
by the time we've got to this report from 1997, and I think this is really what the Dressler Committee does, is to bring together plans or hopes for a successor to the Hubble Space Telescope with plans for a large passively called infrared observatory. And one of the big concerns for people at this point is break what they call the, the, the Hubble paradigm, break the cost curve is another term that's often used. And in a way, there are times when it's almost as if there's an effort to plan for the anti-Hubble <laughs> with, with the next generation space telescope. So if we are looking at slide 48 and we look at the right hand page from the 1997 report, we can see Hubble, and on the right there we see NGST, and there's a deliberate effort to point out, well, what are the differences here? How can we break this Hubble paradigm? How can we um, reduce the costs? So let's go to moment seven, and that gets us to December 1999, and we have the loss of the Mars Polar Lander, which came shortly after the loss of the Mars Climate Orbiter, and both of those two missions had been built with the engineering philosophy of faster, better, cheaper, and if we go to slide 51, there are, um, and I'm following here the book by Howard McCurdy on faster, better, cheaper, but there have been 16 faster, better, cheaper missions launched between 96 and 99, representing a range of science mission directorates at NASA, six of them failed, although maybe it is worth noting of the first 10, one failed, but, and so you could maybe make a case that once people got a bit too confident, then the more failures followed here. But it means really the end of this era of faster, better, cheaper, but NGST emerged in this era, and I think that that is a factor in its history. So let's go to moment eight, 24th of September 2002, and we have the first meeting of the James Webb Space Telescope Science Working Group at the Space Telescope Science Institute in Baltimore, so that is science working group members plus other people invited to that first me meeting. And by that point, 1990, uh, sorry, 2002, TRW had been selected as the prime contractor. Both ESA and NASA had agreed to make contributions to the project. The science working group there were coping with various impacts from an earlier cost summit, as it was called at Goddard. The, the mirror, um, had been descoped from 8 metres to 6 to 6.5 metres. Remember, Dan Golding had pressed for the astronomers to go larger than 4 metres. Well, now it's down to 6.5. There are various other issues. There was originally going to be what was called Nexus. That was going to be a kind of technology test bed for the project, but that was cancelled for lack of funds. There were references to what was um, a magic, what was referred to as the magic number, that is the actual cost number that would be approved, and the number was 800 million. But that is much more, I think, of a kind of political number. And so there, there is uh, a mismatch between what you could call the political number and the technical number. 
the number to actually build it as opposed to the number that was politically acceptable. So let's go to moment nine, the 6th of July, 2011, and JWST gets zeroed out of the budget. And it gets zeroed out by Frank Wolf's House Appropriations Subcommittee. And what they argue is JWST billions over budget, plagued by poor management. The key figure in keeping JWST alive is the um, former senator from Maryland, Barbara Mikulski. She's also, it turns out, a very, very key figure in the Hubble history. The White House may not have been thrilled with James Webb Space Telescope, but they certainly didn't want to lose the support of uh, Senator Mikulski. And so she leads what, in the end, is a successful fight. And there she is visiting the operations center for the uh, Space Telescope at Goddard, I think that is. So that's slide 57. Let's go to slide 58. And part of the issue in 2011 is that there are actually some public critics of JWST. And so, for example, um, on the slide, we can see a bit from what was the Planetary Exploration Newsletter from September 2011. And they're talking about we individually and together reject the premise that, uh, that JWST must be restored at all costs. We further stand by the following positions, and then they lay out their, their different positions here. In, order, in effect, what they're saying is we don't want JWST to come and eat our lunch, I think. And then on the right, this is part of uh, the press coverage that had begun to emerge 2010. So this is a famous report from Nature talking about how JWST cost issues were uh, impacting other projects. So the headline on this Nature report is the telescope that ate astronomy. And so if we go to slide 50. Nine. Here we see the, the kind of basic issues when we've got a really large-scale scientific project uh, of the scale that I've earlier referred to as kind of mega science. And this comes from a forum that was organized by the uh, Organization of Economic Cooperation and Development, 1993, talking about the just the difficulty of establishing priorities within disciplines, but even more so priorities across disciplines. And so when we're talking about NASA flagship missions or very large scale, say, physics particle accelerators, these kinds of issues loom very large. And the other example of a mega science project I, I wanted to spend a few slides on and we've now gone to slide 60. Uh, the other mega science project I think it's useful to think about is the superconducting super collider, which had been approved by President Reagan uh, in 1987. The estimated cost was 4.4 billion, but it ends up being canceled in 1993, not because President Clinton wanted to do it, because, um, but because the Congress had denied funding. 
And at that point, the cost had risen from 4.4 billion to more like 10 billion and, and perhaps quite a bit more. And then if we go to slide 61, again, just to emphasize the sheer scale of the superconducting superclider, this was going to be a physics accelerator that required a 54-mile-long tunnel that would go around the small Texas town of Waxahachie. Initially, it had very strong support. The accelerator was sited uh, in Texas, and so there's an image in the left-hand side of slide 61 where we've got President George Bush being sworn in, and behind him is House Speaker Jim Wright, both obviously with very strong Texas connections. But by 1993, then Texas has lost a substantial amount of political clout because George Bush had been defeated by Bill Clinton in November 1992, and also Jim Wright had had to step down as House Speaker because of uh, issues around a book deal. And so the effort to win support for the superconducting superglider, the effort at what I think we could call coalition building, failed. And it was cancelled in 1993. It's hard to say if there's one cause or a lot of causes, almost certainly it's a range of different causes that contribute to why the superconducting supercollider fails, but um, lack of international partners, some physicists opposed the project, which got um, some of the high-energy physicists um, quite annoyed. Not surprisingly, we had condensed matter physicists, including a Nobel Prize winner, Philip Anderson, going to uh, testify at the Congress that the money that was being spent on the superconducting supercollider would be better spent elsewhere. There was a widespread set of concerns over the federal deficit. And as I already mentioned, there was this loss of political power for Texas. And so the superconducting supercollider was cancelled. They could not establish a coalition. And with James Webb, I think what happened was when it was zeroed out of the budget in 2011, there was a coalition that was put together, a coalition of supporters that was effective in keeping uh, James Webb funded. But there are always moments where things could be potentially lethal, I think, when we're talking about these big projects, if there are these kinds of congressional attacks. So if we go to slide 63, here I, I think um, some significant lessons around what I called here the making of mega project or the making of a mega science project. Well, it has to be made not just scientifically and technically feasible, but it also has to be made politically feasible. And that means assembling this mega project in technical, institutional, um, political terms. And so the, the patronage really matters in that it's not simply a matter of securing enough money to proceed or getting approval, because the advocacy, I think, of a, a mega project really has to be done over and over and over again. It's not 
now we're approved, we can just proceed, which I think to a large degree has been the attitude of the superconductor, uh, super um, conducting supercollider advocates. Um, and that, that, as I say, proved for them um, in the end lethal. Also, I think when we're looking at another mega science project, and that's Hubble, I think Hubble exemplifies, I mean, it had very serious problems early on, obviously, uh, but it exemplifies what I think is the uh, successful management of increasing scale. And so one of the big things I think in uh, 20th century science and in early 21st century science is the management of increasing scale and how to be successful in managing the increasing scale. And so Hubble, I think in the end, was able to demonstrate effectiveness at that in terms of what science managers and astronomers could do and how to operate successfully. And so it raises the question, how will JWST be seen? And, and that obviously remains to be seen and we'll hopefully know much more very shortly. So let's go to slide 65, just again to underline this point, if we've got a really big scientific instrument that is pushing the state of the art, then it represents huge political and managerial achievements that have to be taken into account along with the scientific. Go to slide 66, uh, I mean, there are a range of things that could be said, but let me just mention international partnerships and the historian and particle physicist Michael Reardon in uh, a very, I think, important book on the um, history of the superconducting supercollider argues that the project, in his view, was just too large and too expensive to have been Thank you. So, in his view, as he puts it, the superconducting supercollider was a bridge too far. And if we go back to the 1989 conference at the Space Telescope Science Institute, then um, one of the pieces of advice that uh, one of the conference participants collected pieces of advice, and one, one piece of advice that John Bacall gave in 1989 was international cooperation may be critical for such a major project. And I think that this is one of the factors that distinguishes uh, JWST from the superconducting supercollider, that is going international right from the get-go, not trying to add in later on, which was in fact the case with the SSC. Then there are some other policy issues um, that I think play in, into discussions around mega science projects. A big one is, I mean, how do you initiate a mega science project at a realistic cost? And I mentioned that I thought that the uh, number that G, JWST was approved at we have this mismatch between a politically acceptable number and the technical scientific number. If your numbers are not right early on also, then your reserves are gonna be um, probably too low and that will affect how things develop later in the project. 
And I think these kinds of policy issues have become very real in terms of some of the recommendations from the latest decadal survey, Astro 2020. I mean, how to pursue what I think Astro 2020 is talking about, a multi-generational, very large-scale project. I mean, how do you do that kind of a project? I mean, how do you do, in Nasseries, how do you do flagship projects in terms of getting approved at a certain budget that you can reasonably expect to hold throughout the length of the project. So moment 10, well, that's yet to come because we're waiting for a launch from Carew, hopefully very shortly. And let me just mention at the very end here, uh, if anybody wants to do any further reading on this kind of large-scale project, I've mentioned uh, uh, three books there, and um, by showing this further reading, I'm also acknowledging that some of the research I've done that has gone into in this talk has been done with the aid of collaborators, in particular Patrick McRae, uh, for the early research that we did on the Next Generation Space Telescope, and then also um, a former colleague, Joseph Tatarevich, who assisted and also did his own research around the history of the Hubble Space Telescope. So that is the end of the presentation. Well, let's wrap on this episode. And hey, did you know that on Spotify, you can now rate our podcast? So, uh, please, we really would appreciate it if you could give us a rating on Spotify. Uh, it will help other people find us. Uh, also, to note, we have two other podcasts. Terranauts, hosted by Ian Christie, and they just launched Earth and Space podcast, which focuses on how we use space to benefit us. Your feedback is very much appreciated. You can contact me directly at podcast at spaceview.ca, and also don't forget to follow us on Twitter at The Economy Space. Talk to you soon.